over the last couple of weeks, um, we've looked at some of the books in the uh, Old Testament that are not often used as part of our uh, daily encouragement in terms of reading. And we've noted that the, in the Jewish calendar, these five books that we are looking at over the, over the weeks are used in different settings at festivals and feasts, um, and one particularly at a fast opportunity where they are read in full to remind the community of what these particular gems in the Old Testament contain for our spiritual health. And we looked at the beginning two, three weeks ago at the Song of Songs. We looked then at Ruth. Last week, we looked at Lamentations. And I did say to you that I was going to rest on Lamentations for two weeks because we have, I, I really believe, in Western society lost the capacity and particularly in charismatic Pentecostals and evangelical circles, the capacity to lament, to actually deal with grief and loss in a way that is uh, real. And there is, and this is the balance we will hope to keep when we look at it today, but I want to look at the life of David briefly as an individual instance of how lament is woven into the fabric of life and how we are called to actually face reality in, in the way that it comes to us. So let's read to begin with from Psalm 22. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then I'm going to read from verse 19 to 21. And then I'm going to read just a few verses from chapter 26 and 27 in Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were never disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. A little bit further on in, chapter, uh, in verse 19. But you, are, O Lord, be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then we fast forward a few centuries and we come to the son of David, who is Jesus. In chapter 26 of Matthew, he's come through the process of the last week in Jerusalem, and he's in Gethsemane with his disciples in chapter 26, Matthew. And in verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be enormously sorrowful. He was weighed down and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow 
to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then we know how the whole thing uh, transpires that he's arrested and the trial before uh, the Sanhedrin and various other things. And we come to the place where he's led out to be crucified. And in chapter 27, and this is interesting, these are the last words of Jesus before he dies. This is chapter 27, verse 45. From about six o'clock until nine o'clock, darkness came over the land. And from and about nine o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when he had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The last recorded words we have of Jesus on the cross are the same words that he echoes from Psalm 22, that David expresses, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find on his lips before he gives up his spirit, before he dies. Fascinating. Lament, grief over those things that we have lost. And it's not just about, I'm not just talking here about when someone has died. Yes, that's the ultimate sense of loss. But when we have struggled with all kinds of loss of mobility through pain or health, we've, we've struggled with all kinds of uh, disaffection and um, dislocation in our lives. That kind of grief, that lament, is the bumpy part of the road before resurrection. And I think that's important to state right at the beginning. We lament not because we focus on the dark things, not because we want to only look at what is dislocated and wrong. We lament because we want to be honest with what's actually happened, with what is really actually going on in this moment. We need to face what there is and what there is in our lives. We need to be clear and honest about what's actually happened to us and not sweep it under the carpet. We all experience loss. And David, um, as much as any of us, and when you go to two, uh, two Kings, I've got it in this one here. Let me have a look at it. When you go to uh, two Samuel, sorry. Here we are, chapter one. There's been an enormous battle that's taken place. And both Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, there is this whole, um, where, where David learns of their death and he takes, um, he avenges the death. And then he comes back and he, he sings this song of lament. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How have the mighty fallen? And David begins a whole pouring out of grief over Saul, the man who brought him into court life as his musician to calm his spirit, 
and who then ended up spending most of his life chasing him in the desert to kill him. But David recognized that Saul was the anointed of God. And even when he had the chance to take Saul's life, he didn't because he recognized that even though he was flawed and broken, he was still God's choice. He was God's man. He didn't touch him at all. And Jonathan, who was Saul's son, who David had become deep friends with, but who had sacrificed the friendship in order for David to be safe. Both of them are killed in battle. And David pours out his grief in a lament in the most remarkable way. Further on in David's life, and this is a different scenario altogether, but you have Absalom, his son. And we won't go into the whole story of Absalom now, but su suffice to say that Absalom... Uh, he tries to usurp David from being king, and he gets beaten. David, David retains the throne, and Absalom is exiled. There's a whole lot of mediation that goes on. Sometime later, Absalom comes back, but David doesn't bring him back into the fold. He continues. Absalom lives in Jerusalem, but he's not allowed to the palace. He's not allowed to eat with his father. In, in other words, he's brought back in, but there is still hostility from David towards Absalom. And then, to cut a long story short, Absalom is killed. And in chapter 18, chapter 19, it says at the end of chapter 18, the king was deeply moved and went up into the chamber over the gate and wept. And he said, as he walked, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, you read that in a flat tone, but what you hear is this gut-wrenching grief at the loss of his son. Pulled out of him. And then he says to Job, um, then it was said to Job, see the king is weeping and he mourns for Absalom. And so it, it carries on. David was acquainted with grief. He understood grief. He understood loss. He understood what it meant to actually look it in the face and deal with it. And we said last time that the, the Psalms that are recorded that we have, there's 150 of them, a large chunk of those are what we know as Psalms of David. A roughly 70% of David's Psalms, Psalm way is a Greek word for praise. And we still say 70% roughly of the praise songs that David has written are laments. How do you call a thing of praise a lament? How do you equate the two of them? And I think what it boils down to is that all these laments, and as we looked at last week, and I gave those of you who, who were here uh, um, a sheet with Psalm 4 as a framework, a template, to look at the whole question of how to lament. And we have that if you want one. But lament is never, ever, as far as David is concerned, just an expression of grief. It's always an expression of hope and praise at the same time. Now, 
what the Psalms of David tell us, I think, if we look at them, is that when David deals with what life is, and the Psalms deal with all the different facets of life, lament, grief, loss is one of those things that as Christians we need to face full on. And the reason for me doing this for two weeks in a row is is just simply because I think we have lost the capacity, the art of, of mourning, grieving, lamenting, of expressing to God, not just to each other. I think we have a fairly healthy way of expressing complaint to one another about everything under the sun. But I'm talking about addressing God with the things that have wounded us and disabled us and bringing them to him in a way that is real and honest and enables us to face it. Because one of the things that I think happens is that we have in our culture, we have two options essentially. And you hear, if you go to any funeral, they are on display. And if you start to look for them, they are all over the place where people suffer difficulty and loss. And the one is get over it as soon as possible, get over it. Just, you know, just, Whatever you do, just put it aside or something. Get over it. And the other is saying, well, it's not really that bad. You know, it's, it's you know, you'll be fine. It's not that bad. And I believe, and I'm not going to go into that this morning, but I believe that a lot of our uh, addiction and depression in our personal lives and in our society is because we sweep things behind us. We do not look at them and address them. The Hebrew tradition, and I think one that we need to re resurrect in our modern lives, is to face everything that's there, including all the junk that comes at us, the rejection and all the heartache, and to frame it, to articulate it, and to put it before God for him to deal with with us. We don't face it alone. That's the point. We're not, we're not overcoming this because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Let's turn to Psalm 22. It's, it's a remarkable song. 22. Israel knew how to grieve. There is this whole process that takes place. And it says to, um, when we looked at one, uh, one Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, in verse 18, uh, 17 and 18, after David comes back from battle, and he, it says in verse 17, then David chanted this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And it wasn't good enough for David only to do that, because verse 18 says, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. And it's written in the book of Jashar. It was recorded. It was written down. It was solidified into something that could be transmitted from generation to generation. This is one of David's songs. It's a lament for David, for Saul and Jonathan. And it says categorically that David said to them, teach it to one another. 
learn how to lament because that's a skill that we need to have as human beings. That's something that we need to be able to do, not just because we are Christian, but because we are human. We've been created in this way and we live in this world. We have to deal with what comes at us. And Jesus says to his disciples, you know, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. If you've not had trouble up until now, and there's nothing going horribly wrong in your life, let me just cheer you up a bit this morning and say, at some point in the future, you will have trouble. How do we deal with it? And I think the first thing that David teaches us is that you have to look at it. You have to face it. You have to be honest with it. You have to see what's actually really there. And that's not only the situation out there, it's how it has impacted and pinged upon your life, every part of your life, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical. If we are going to, this is a quote, it's not, not something that I can't remember where I found this, but it says, if you are true, going to truly live truly, you must face, face death fully because life matters. Let me say that again. I mangled it a bit. If you are going to live truly, you must face death fully because life matters. And failure to deal with the reality that we have eventually means that our lives become dislocated and we become more and more sick. So let's look at Psalm 22. And I read those first eight verses to you, and um, I'm, I'm not exactly a dramatist, but they are dramatic verses. And to read them, if you had someone read them in a dramatic style, they are the kind of verses, and even from verse 9 to 15, verses that are like the lament that we read in 2 Samuel 1. They, they, they wrenched out of their expression of, 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 of deep, deep pain. There's something wrong. And when we looked at the format that we had with, the, with Psalm 4, the first thing is to, is to actually get it on the table. It's to address God with our complaint. And if you go and read Job, the book of Job, you get exactly the same thing. It's an extended lament, basically, with all the different voices of the friends coming in. If you look at Ruth, the book of Ruth that we looked at, and we didn't deal with this in any detail, but if you look at Naomi, she says, God, what have you done to me? She complains. And you see the intimate working out in the daily life of how God deals with that and how at the end, She's able to celebrate, and the people around her celebrate the fact that God has richly blessed her. But we have to say it. We have to put it out there. We have to articulate what's actually going on. And there's this desperate feeling of loss in these first verses, in the first 17, 18 verses. This violation of the body, this sense of bewilderment but that this is happening to me. Why me? This why question that comes up so often. Um, in the past, 
uh, girl went to see somebody uh, some years ago and um, they were angry with God and how God had uh, abandoned them. And um, when Gail inquired, it was about the fact that her father had died. And so Gail said, well, how old is your father? And he was in his 80s. Now, that's quite strange. I mean, that there's, there's a sense of 80, 80 something. That's not a bad age. But there's still the sense of dislocation, of loss, of wrench. And we need to record it. And what the psalmist does, what David does in the psalm, is he puts it down. He says, there it is. And it's like Jesus with the suffering that he goes through in the Garden of Gethsemane. He drinks the cup to its full. Then as we looked at Psalm 4, and we look here in, 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 in Psalm 22 as well, there's a shift, a total shift of gear in the middle of the psalm. There's virtually a first part of the psalm and a second part of the psalm. Where the second part of the psalm, he says, but you, O Lord, don't be far off from me. My strength, come quickly to help me. There's a shift of gear where he refocuses not on the thing that is happening and what's going on, but he reorientates the situation in the context of who God is. And the rest of the psalm, the rest of Psalm 22, is an expression of who God is and what God's part in this whole process is. And this is the kind of thing that, that David does all the time through the psalm. There is a, almost a template that he helps those of us who, who, who recognize this to be able to say what's going on, but to always put it in the context of who Jesus is, what's actually going on in the bigger picture, what God is like for us in our lives, and to be able to praise God for that. There's a gathering of friends and family, a giving witness, if you like, to life. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you do not grieve like those who are without hope. And that's an expression of, for all, all of the, lo the loss we feel in terms of the hope that we have in him. Psalm 23 miraculously follows Psalm 22. For those of you who uh, know how to count. And when you read, we always read these things as dislocated things. When you read Psalm 22 and it ends off, they will proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, for he has done it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There is a, a link in the whole theme of it. And then it comes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of deep darkness, I fear no evil. It's important to lament, but it's important as much to recognize that our father is our shepherd. He shepherds us through this. He leads us into quiet waters. He restores our soul even when we walk in deep darkness. Let me just finish off with this.
Here we are. It's, it's a well-known, well-worn passage in Romans 8. No, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in him. We do tend to lean towards the end of the chapter, but what that verse is saying is that, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he went through the Garden of Gethsemane. There was the grappling, the temptation, exceedingly sorrowful and troubled is how he puts it. And then he cries out from the cross, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. But we know that that's not the end. Those are his last words before he dies. But then there is resurrection. There is new life. There is rebirth. And Jesus, as Moni reminded us this morning, Jesus comes back. He returns. And he is raised to life. And he's there with the disciples. And they are energized by the gift of his spirit at Pentecost. And they are revolutionized from being people who are persecuted and fear to being those who stand and, and say, yes, we know. In the church, what we've done so often is we've pushed people to only have a sense of celebration and victory. But we cannot get to that with authenticity unless we have gone through the process of lamenting and dealing with the stuff that's actually happened in our lives. Then what happens is you find yourself in chapter 8, verse 28 in Romans. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. The, the, the texture, the dark and the light of our lives, God is able to weave into a tapestry of beauty that has both the um, underpinnings of all that he's done with us and in us and through us in that whole thing. And then, of course, it goes on to say, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he lists myriad different things. He just lists everything that he can think of. And then he says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all of creation can't separate us from God's love. We lament, we grieve, we, we express all that's going on, but we do it in this secure context of knowing that we are loved and cared for and that we are healed. So I want to pray for us because we've experienced all kinds of stuff over the last weeks, months, and years, personally and as a society. And I just want to ask the Spirit of God to rest on us this morning, to help us to, to deal with what's happened, but to bring resurrection and healing and celebration.